Hey there. So this is part two of a two-part story. And if you missed part one or just want a refresher, here's three quick things. First, some hospitals, definitely not all, sue a lot of patients over unpaid bills. Hundreds, even thousands every year. Second, there's very little money in it for these hospitals. When reporters and researchers add up the total amounts they're suing for, it looks tiny compared to, say, their annual surplus or what they pay executives. Tiny. Third, there's data showing a lot of the people being sued are pretty hard up already. That a lot of them would qualify for charity care under the hospital's own financial assistance policies. In fact, as we reported last time, a guy named Nick McLaughlin, who spent a decade working for a medical bill collections agency, now runs a business telling hospitals they'd be better off financially writing these bills off through charity care or financial assistance programs. And I should point out, Nick is not a do-good crusader. He has started a business to help hospitals do this. And he has staked his family's financial future on it. I've had a good but challenging conversation with my wife, and she said, hey, so is the reason we're not doing this full-time because we're uh, scared the money's not going to come in? And I said, well, as the sole provider of a family of five, that's kind of a big deal. She said, yeah, I think we should do it. And at the end of our last episode, I asked Nick, so why would some hospitals make the decision to sue people if there's basically no money in it? Like, what's behind that decision? And he said, it's really, I would say, philosophically based. So in this episode, we're going to do two things. One, we'll try to get a peek at that philosophy, like inside the heads of people who might hold it. And two, we're going to share some hard data about what's going on with these lawsuits in three states, because we partnered with two awesome news organizations to get this data. And I'm going to tell you what we found looks like some really good news. And the whole inquiry really drove home ways we can help ourselves and help each other. You ready? Here we go. With Scripps News and the Baltimore Banner, this is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter. I like the challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you something entertaining, empowering, and useful. So let's talk about that philosophy I mean, you could call it a form of not thinking too hard. Let's start with a witness. These days, Ruth Lande works for a nonprofit you might have heard of, RIP Medical Debt, where she helps get hospital bills forgiven. But we talked with her because she spent more than 25 years working in hospital billing, most of it at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And by the way, she loved it. In general, I think it's good if a job has three things. It's for a good mission. Two, it should be hard. It should be complicated so it engages your brain every day. And third, it should be with really good colleagues. And I got to tell you, working revenue cycle satisfied all three of those for me. And of course, during her quarter century in the business, the question of whether or not to file lawsuits over hospital bills did come up when she got a promotion. 
In her earlier role, she'd run one part of the billing department where they never sued anybody. And now she was taking over another part of the billing department, a bigger one, where sometimes they did. And she says her new colleagues were aware that in her earlier position, she had taken a no lawsuits approach. There was an assumption, oh, yeah, Ruth won't allow that. But she told me she didn't want to be in conflict with her new colleagues, you know, on day one. And so I said, well, I'm not going to just ban it, but, you know, bring me cases. If you believe that we should be suing a person, then just bring me the case so I can review it. And they never brought a case to me ever. Never, ever. She thinks those colleagues just maybe hadn't stopped to look at who they were suing. When you really examine closely, you see the harm. They would have probably imagined that they're only suing some really rich people sitting up in a mansion somewhere, not bothering to pay their bills. And you might imagine it would be interesting to talk with someone who thinks this way, like really talk with them, push them on their point of view. And that did happen. Kind of. It was honestly one of the most confusing conversations I've ever had. It was with this guy. My name is Scott Purcell. I'm the CEO of ACA International. That is the industry association for folks in the bill collection business. And Scott was super accommodating. He got on Zoom with me like within a day of my first email to him. And we did it so quickly. It wasn't until we got on that I realized we like hadn't set a length for the appointment. How long do I actually have you for? How long do you need us for? Uh, I like to talk to people for a long time, but can we start with a half an hour and maybe... Um, bum, bum, bum. I just need to change one meeting. We talked for more than an hour. And that first half hour was pretty frustrating. So I would describe our findings and findings from other people's reports. For instance, how little money hospitals seem to gain from these lawsuits and ask Scott if he had data to help understand what we we're seeing. And instead of offering data... He kept saying effectively, hey, let's not jump to policy conclusions like how would a new policy on debt collection affect mm, a medical office with just three doctors? I would say that three person doctor office is different from one of the top 10 nonprofit healthcare system. Their economics are completely different. And yet we're talking about policy positions uh, that impact both. And then in retrospect, I have figured out a spot where we just really, really lost each other. I was talking about one observer's take on why these lawsuits don't bring in that much money. Because a lot of the people that end up as your defendants are effectively indigent. Um, You know, they don't have a lot of income. They may not have W-2 employment that you could garnish. They don't have other assets you can take. So the amount that you get is not, not what you might expect from looking at the number of cases and the number of judgments. Yeah, 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 yeah. If, if I could stop you, yeah, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to see that data. Um, do you know that it takes a lot of money to file a lawsuit? I can't think, and so my lived experience, I cannot think of one instance where either the hospital or the collection agency or the attorney would choose to sue an indigent person because if they are going to have a low probability of being able to repay that debt over time, why would you invest significant amounts of money at the front end. So what I didn't realize then was when I said some people were effectively indigent, Scott Purcell had latched onto the word indigent and he had a very specific image in his mind of like absolute destitution. So from that point forward, anything I would say about people being sued who were hard up, who qualified for charity care, who really couldn't pay, was going to run through this filter. And any example I'd bring up of someone being sued who got put in an extremely tough position 
was just going to sound to him like some novel anecdote. A half hour in, I got pretty direct with Scott. So I asked, how did this happen? How did it happen that we like got to the point where so many people are being sued over debts they can't pay? What do you know about that? And this is where things got really confusing to me because here's how Scott responded. If you just sued somebody who can't pay, they're not going to pay you. So, And they're not out any money. So you made a bad business decision. Uh, but, but truly, Dan, what is the harm they're experiencing? The fact that they got sued and they can't pay. I did not see that coming. The idea that being sued could be harmless. And, you know, here's what I said. My gosh. Well, I can tell you, you know, people, by the time they've been sued, they've been getting tons of collections calls. Their credit may have suffered. And they have a judgment against them that says, like, any money that shows up in their bank account can be seized. Or that, you know, the next time they get a job, their wages can be garnished. That's pretty significant harm. I mean, I talked, I described to Scott the story of Liz Gerardo, a woman on Long Island who says she found out years after the fact that she had been sued over a bill relating to the birth of one of her kids. A bill she says she thought insurance had paid. So her husband was the main breadwinner till he got laid off. Then Liz took a job working for DoorDash to support the family, her first W-2 paycheck in a long time. And she says that's how she found out about the lawsuit. Because once she started the job, she started getting letters saying her wages were going to be garnished. And she was like, what is this? Where did it come from? How could they not tell me about it until now? I get a job and three months later, you're coming after me. I mean, this is my family's bread and butter. This is horrible. I said to Scott, yeah, that seems bad, right? So I'm, at, I'm, I'm trying to give you the opportunity to respond to that point that lots of people make, that if you get sued over a debt you can't pay, there's harm. That's, that's a lot of people's positions, and I find it fairly persuasive. How do you respond to that? You and I were using a hypothetical. You said somebody got sued who's indigent, has no money. Do you think that doesn't happen? I don't understand the business case as to why that would happen because- Do you think it doesn't happen because like, do you think the reports that show that it happens a lot are wrong? I mean, I talked to a couple a couple months ago who got sued over a debt. I mean, their story was like, they got hit with a bunch of medical problems. I described to him the story of Casey and Ron Gasher, who we met in our last episode. The bills for their medical adventures through their finances completely out of whack. We would dig a little bit out of our hole and then we'd go right back down. Until they were in danger of losing their house. They filed for Chapter 13 bankruptcy, like wrapping everything they owed into a five-year payment plan. And they'd just about made it through when they got a letter from a law firm. They were being sued over a medical bill that had arrived just after the bankruptcy started. And by this time, I, I was getting a little worked up. So these are not hypothetical. And these are not like... You know, these stories are just entirely consistent with the data that that gets collected. So when you ask me, like, what's the harm? I want to give you this opportunity to say, like, you sure that's your position? So first of all, that was on a different that was a different question. I was under the impression it was an indigent person now and, and they would remain indigent their whole life. I don't know why that decision got made. If indeed that person um, is indigent, why a particular provider has whatever parameters they've set for their lawsuit program. I can't speak to the business decisions they're making. I can speak to societally. We, 
what do we expect people to pay and not pay? With the case of the couple in Wisconsin, I mean, like if they couldn't pay ever, if their chapter 13 hadn't worked out and they'd lost their house and they'd lost their jobs and they couldn't pay ever, are you saying they wouldn't be harmed? I'm saying the answer lies in taking those stories to the table and let's take a look at what are the other policy changes that should be made in order to get better outcomes. So in the situation you did outline, I'm sure that individual actually went through emotional stress, but there's safeguards throughout. So I think about the judge and if the judge didn't properly use a protection that's already in place to take into account that circumstance. So you're saying you view this as a kind of exceptional case and that generally there are, from what you know, guidelines and guardrails, as you say, to prevent this sort of thing from happening. It's the thing. I don't have data to answer it. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I just need to say it's striking um, that you asked, yeah, like, where's, where's the harm? Once again, I made an assumption of that story that they were indigent now and would be indigent forever. Well, I guess I just don't understand. I, I, I don't really quite understand the difference. Can you explain the distinction between someone being indigent right now and being indigent forever? I, I don't really get the distinction at all. And I don't know in which case, in which case there is harm, in which case there isn't in your view. So um, I wasn't being flippant. Uh, I was taking a very extreme. Um, I'm in D.C. I see homeless people now. So when I heard you say indigent, I'm thinking somebody who's living under a bridge, they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. I was thinking that level of indigent you're talking about, I think, the the working class and people beyond that and up to the higher end scale is your question. And for that, my answer is back to there are safeguards that should be occurring. And if those safeguards don't occur, harm does happen. And we collectively need to look at why there are gaps in those safeguards. So in retrospect, knowing how Scott Purcell took that word indigent. I'm a little less mystified, but the conversation still seems really striking to me. Because for one thing, there's the idea, I mean, even if it's not a conscious philosophy, that some people are beyond hope. So they're beyond harm. So morally, it wouldn't matter like if you sued them. But the other thing that strikes me is the difficulty Scott Purcell had understanding, believing that people being really harmed is something that happens at scale. That last thing he said, there are safeguards that should be occurring and if those safeguards don't occur, harm does happen. That word if seems to be doing a lot of work there beyond the mountains of data that folks compiled showing that people get sued who qualify for charity care and that people who get sued over medical bills tend to live in neighborhoods where poverty is high. There's also this finding that's just practically a cliche that is about four out of 10 Americans don't have enough money on hand to cover a $400 emergency expense. Maybe I should have mentioned that to Scott Purcell. I I just didn't think I'd need to. Scott Purcell is sitting atop a whole industry that needs to know, basically, how much money people have. I mean, since we talked, I've seen a report for folks in his industry, third-party collections, 
that goes into a lot of detail on that topic. Of course, third-party collections agencies are for-profit businesses, and at least for some of them, lawsuits like these are part of the business. So I guess I'm starting to understand, maybe belatedly, how hard it is to get some people to reconsider business as usual. Is business as usual a philosophy? But sometimes business as usual does change. In fact, I'm about to share some much more cheerful news with you. It's what our partners found when we went looking for details on these hospital bill lawsuits in three states. Because the big surprise was in what we didn't find. That's coming right up. This episode is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That is a nonprofit newsroom covering healthcare in America. They're incredible journalists, win all kinds of awards every year. I'm so glad we get to work with them. And this investigation builds directly on reporting by KFF reporters like Jay Hancock, Noam Levy, and Jordan Rao. Respect. Okay, so this whole inquiry into why some hospitals sue so many patients who could just get charity care started a couple years ago. And that's when I spotted what looked like a clue. It was in a big report done by National Nurses United, which looked at 145,000 hospital lawsuits against patients in Maryland over a 10-year period. And in addition to documenting how little money hospitals were getting from these suits compared to the million-dollar salaries they pay a lot of executives, the report also noted, just kind of by the way, on page 18 of a 68-page report, that a relatively small number of attorneys were filing most of these lawsuits. Like, just five attorneys filed almost two-thirds of the cases, and just one attorney filed more than 40,000 cases. And I was like, huh, well, maybe that's a clue, because it seems like hospitals don't get a lot of benefit from these lawsuits, but maybe we're looking at somebody who does. We should find out more. Uh, starting with the names of those lawyers, which weren't in the report. And I was going to want a big update on Maryland because that report was part of a big advocacy campaign, which really worked. In 2021, Maryland enacted a new law saying hospitals couldn't sue anybody without checking to see if they qualified for free care, which in retrospect, you know, may seem like an obvious requirement. Here's Malcolm Heflin, one of the organizers who worked on the campaign. It's like reading the postscript in a Dickens novel almost. Be like, oh, yeah, hey, look, now we can't chain children to, to factory machines. Like, what? Wait, what? That was legal before? <laughs> anyway, if that report was the before picture, what would after look like? So I was going to need help. And I got some. My name is Ryan Little, and I am the data editor at the Baltimore Banner. The Banner is a new nonprofit daily newspaper without the paper. Data reporting is a big specialty there. And Ryan is the big specialist. Pulling a lot of Maryland courts data was already on his to-do list. And so I said, I can share this with you. Maybe there's a way that we can make a partnership happen. And then many months later, you've probably regretted that. But we've had a good time doing it anyways. <laughs> no way. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Ryan is amazing. And I'm so lucky to get to work with him. But I wanted to know about more than just Maryland. And I got lucky there, too. Maryland's not the only state where advocates compiled a bunch of court data to push for change. You might remember Elizabeth Benjamin in New York from our last episode. She's the one who pointed out how little money is involved in these suits for hospitals, at least the ones she's looked at. They're suing people for pennies, right? The average lawsuit's like maybe 1,900 bucks. 
So they're suing them for chump change, but that $1,900 is like life ruining for the patient. She knew that because she had pulled more than 50,000 hospital bill lawsuits from across the state. And she used that data in a series of reports that got new laws passed, like one banning wage garnishment to pay medical debts. And she shared a giant spreadsheet with me, which included the names of attorneys in 40,000 cases. And uh, guess what? Just three law firms handled the majority of those cases. So now we knew this was not just a Maryland thing. But we were going to want to look somewhere else too, someplace where no new laws had been passed, someplace that was still a before picture, someplace like Wisconsin. I'd been getting reports from a public interest lawyer there named Bobby Peterson. He'd been publishing some data about lawsuits, but he hadn't gotten any laws passed. And he also wasn't able to share data. So I was going to need more help. My name is Rosie Chima, and I manage a data reporting team at Scripps News. I also report for them. Yes, more data help. Scripps News came aboard as a partner and Rosie started looking for the data we would need in Wisconsin. And at this point, it may be getting clearer why it has taken us more than a year to bring this story to you. I mean, let's just recap for a second all the moving parts we've already got in play here. We've got Ryan pulling cases in Maryland, Rosie doing the same in Wisconsin, me with some New York cases. We're looking to see what the after picture looks like in Maryland and New York, and we're looking at the role of a few lawyers. And this is where I admit that initial hypothesis that the lawyers were driving these lawsuits, like sweet-talking hospitals to drum up business, that didn't really pan out. As far as I can tell, after talking with a bunch of people, it doesn't seem to work that way. A lot of the time, anyway, it seems like the lawyers are often freelancers. They get hired by the collection agencies who get their marching orders from the hospital revenue office. But I am so glad we went looking because of what we did find, or you could say uh, what we didn't. In Maryland, Ryan spent months and months and months collecting hundreds of thousands of cases and then weeks and weeks crunching the numbers. And then on Wednesday, September 6th, I sent this email. I find this hard to believe, but it may be that there were zero medical debt lawsuits filed by hospitals against individuals in 2022 and 2023. Ryan found it hard to believe, like, it must be wrong. So he went back to try to find his mistake. And that took almost a week. On Monday, September 11th, I emailed, Hey, Dan, news that hospital debt collection lawsuits had ended in Maryland was wrong. But it looks like the Maryland judiciary is somehow suppressing them in case search. Either intentionally or not, I'm rewriting the code to account for this. Ryan thought the Maryland court system was hiding these cases. So not only did he rewrite the code, he went to the courthouse to go hunt for whatever was missing, which took him another week. And then I got one more email. So on September 18th, I said, Maryland hospitals are dot, 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 basically not suing anyone for medical debt anymore. Basically not suing anyone for medical debt this year. Wow. I mean... We had expected a significant drop. I mean, if only because Maryland had passed that 2021 law, which required hospitals to see if people were eligible for charity care before suing them. But zero was a much bigger drop than we expected. Next up, New York. A few months ago, we looked at those three law firms, the ones that handled the majority of hospital bill cases there. And as far as we can tell, 
Two of them were just not doing any work for hospitals at all anymore. Huh. But okay, again, we had expected an after picture in both of those states. What about Wisconsin? Well, for one thing, getting the data for Wisconsin turned out to be tough. When we took this on the first time, it definitely seemed like it'd be a lot easier than it ended up being. <laughs> yeah, you can pull some case data from the web, but there's a problem. Once a case has been dismissed, it gets removed from that website after a few years. So all the data that we had from before 2020 was missing some <laughs> unknown number of cases. Unknown. We can laugh about it now, but it really sucked. We did find some guys who had data on older cases socked away. And from them, we got the full caseloads for two lawyers who we'd heard did a lot of medical bill lawsuits. So we found more than 8,000 cases in one year for two lawyers. That was 2019, pre-pandemic. And in 2022, there were fewer than 1,500 for both of them. In other words, these two lawyers were doing less than a quarter as much medical bill business as they'd been doing three years earlier. And Rosie pulled numbers year by year, client by client, which was super revealing because for both of them, their biggest clients, hospitals and medical practices for whom they had been filing hundreds of cases a year, for the most part, now seemed to be filing no cases. Zero. Which wasn't totally conclusive. We knew these lawyers were getting less work. The thing that we didn't know was like whether Hospital A had stopped suing or whether they had just stopped hiring this lawyer. Right. So Rosie went back to the public data website to see whether those hospitals, A, B, and C, and so on, were suing. And for the most part, they weren't. At least, not like they used to. Yeah, we now know that those cases weren't going to a different lawyer, right? They're just not being filed. Just not being filed. And it wasn't just the hospitals that had been using these two lawyers that had fallen away. Other hospitals that had been suing tons of patients had cut way back from more than a thousand in 2019 to a few dozen or less than a dozen or one or zero. One hospital system sued more than 4,700 people in 2019. In 2023 so far, they've sued one. And remember, because older cases get wiped from the web, there's some unknown number from 2019 that we aren't even seeing. So the decline is probably bigger than what we see. So one thing to say is we don't know why this is happening in any of these states. Our colleagues at the Baltimore Banner called every hospital in Maryland to ask about these changes and got a bunch of no comment. We emailed dozens of hospitals in Wisconsin and got basically the same answer. So... We're left with some guessing, and here are some of our best guesses. Those new laws in New York and Maryland didn't outlaw lawsuits, but the Maryland law made them more difficult, and the New York laws made it harder to collect. And the campaigns that led to those laws brought a lot of negative attention to hospitals that filed a lot of lawsuits. So one way or another, it seems like a lot of hospitals decided it just wasn't worth it. And in Wisconsin, laws didn't change, but the reports that lawyer Bobby Peterson put out there, they did get some attention locally. 
We know in Wisconsin, a lot of hospitals halted lawsuits altogether for a while when the pandemic started. Maybe hospitals noticed they weren't exactly losing a ton of money when that happened. Here's one last data point from Rosie. She looked closely at the case she had for those two lawyers from 2019, the ones where the hospital was awarded a judgment. We found that the majority of those awards were never fulfilled. Like, I feel like that's important. A judge said, yes, you, defendant, owe this company, the plaintiff, this much money. In a lot of cases, the plaintiff hasn't paid out. And it's been years. Which I don't think is evidence that, wow, these folks were really good at dodging payments. No, because in a lot of these old cases, the judge gave an okay to garnish these folks' wages, to take money directly from their paycheck. So if these debts haven't been paid years later, and remember, these are often amounts of $1,000 or less, It seems like these folks may be earning so little that garnishing their wages for years doesn't get you much. So, start wrapping up. There's a ton we don't know. For one thing, there are 47 other states we haven't looked at. And we don't know if the hospitals in these three states are going to start suing again when they think nobody's looking. But here's something I do know. A surprising number of those 47 other states have been passing new laws and regulations just in the last couple of years to prevent hospitals from filing so many lawsuits against folks who qualify for charity care, like Illinois, Arizona, Colorado, Minnesota, Washington, Oregon, and I'm probably missing some. But here is the single biggest thing I am taking away from this whole adventure. A lot more people qualify for charity care that's free or discounted care from a hospital than we think. And we can help ourselves and each other just by spreading the word. So I called Casey Gasher in Wisconsin again a couple of weeks ago. It wasn't a great day for her. Everybody in my house is sick and I just tested positive for COVID. Oh. And now we're going to lose work time. Yeah, right. Yeah. <sighs> Tell you, it never ends. <laughs> I was calling because I knew Casey and her husband, Ron, have had more medical adventures this year. More knee trouble for him, emergency surgery for her, time away from work, lost income for both of them, and thousands of dollars of new medical bills. And I said to her, it seems to me like maybe you and Ron would qualify to have some of those bills forgiven through charity care. I think my my husband makes too much. And I was like, well, maybe. But as we learned from Nick McLaughlin in our last episode, almost 60% of Americans qualify for charity care at a bunch of hospitals and The nonprofit Dollar Four has created a database of charity care policies of almost every hospital in the country, and they've built it into their website. So you can type in a few details like where you were treated, how much you make, and it'll tell you whether you're likely to qualify for help. So I'm looking at their website right now. Mm -hmm. And would it be okay with you to just kind of walk through kind of what they're asking you, what they... um, Yeah, sure. The questions included like, where'd you get seen and when? Um, My surgery was July 24th. Casey and I went line by line, filling out the form. I had her hunting for tax returns and other documents. Hey, Ron, can you send me a um, a pay stub? Can you send me a picture of it? Like now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going to add those up. And yeah. So dollar four thinks that you would qualify. Wow. That surprises me. 
This is good. This is really good. I'm really glad that we took this step. Yeah, me too, because I was kind of, I didn't know where to go. And like, it seems so weird asking for charity. But Casey was ready to take the next step. This application that I'm filling out now, do I have to do one for myself and one for Ron? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to work on this. And this is a thing we can do for ourselves and each other. Spread the word. The majority of people qualify for at least some charity care, at least partially wiping out your bill at a lot of hospitals. And the $4 website is set up to tell you if you're likely to qualify and to help you apply. And they've also got actual human beings on staff to help if you get stuck. Their website is $4, that's $4.org, $4.org. And that is our story. We never got all the way to the bottom of the question of why these bulk lawsuits happened or why they seem to have stopped in some places, but we did get a peek into the process. And we learned some things that are heartening. A lot fewer lawsuits in these three states. And I've learned a lot more along the way. There's going to be follow-ups. This has been a huge project for our little outfit. We got a ton of help from our partners and we put a ton of resources into it. Travel to Wisconsin and Michigan, months of phone calls, 1600 bucks to get court records. We've been able to do that because you've been supporting us, giving us the resources to do the job. And this is the absolute best time to pitch in because every dollar you give is matched. A few generous arm and a leg listeners have put up more than $10,000 in matching funds on top of what the Institute for Nonprofit News does through their news match program. And I want to max it out. The place to go is armandalegshow.org slash support. And there's a link in the show notes, pretty much anywhere you're listening to this. We're going to be back next week with a quick little coda to this story. Meanwhile, thank you so much for helping us make this show. I'm going to give that address one more time, armandalegshow.com slash support. I'll catch you next week. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, with Emily Pisacreta and Bella Chikowski, in partnership with Scripps News. Thanks there to Rosie Chima, Amber Strong, Claire Malloy, Jacqueline Bylon, and Zach Toombs. And the Baltimore Banner. Thanks to Ryan Little, Meredith Cohn, Brenna Smith, and Kimmy Yoshino. And the McGraw Center for Business Journalism at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York. With thanks to Jane Sassim. Our work on this story is supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism, edited by Ellen Weiss. Big thanks also to Jared Walker, Bobby Peterson, Luke Messick, Jeff Bloom, Emily Stewart, Bernita Hayes, Matt Slafarski, Amanda Dunkler, and Marceline White, plus Barry and Joe from Court Data Technologies in Wisconsin. Gabrielle Healy is an arm and a leg managing editor for Audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. Sarah Balama is our operations manager. B. Bosco is our consulting director of operations. And Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with KFF Health News. That's a national newsroom producing in-depth journalism about healthcare in America and a core program at KFF, an independent source of health policy research, polling, and journalism. You can learn more about KFF Health News at armandalegshow.com slash KFF. Zach Dyer is senior audio producer at KFF Health News. He's editorial liaison to this show. Thank you to the Institute for Nonprofit News for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about INN at inn.org. 
finally. Thank you to everybody who supports this show financially. If you haven't yet, this is the best time to pitch in. Again, the place for that is armandalegshow.com slash support. And I'm going to shout out a few people who've come aboard since our last episode. Thanks this time to Arnold and Carol Cantor, Joe Gallagher, the one and only D.B. Cooper, Eve Padette, Stephen Whiting, Graham Waters, Dave DeBronkart, Farrell Buczynski, Katie Berryhill, Print and Marketing Solutions Group, Catherine Tenza, Mark Comrade, MD, Christian Torheim, Linda Gomez, Ellen Weiss, Beth Morgan, LJ, Megan Erie, Orly Anconia, Wendy Greenhouse, Elizabeth Main, Beth Egan, Corey Doctorow, Louis Schlickman, and Taylor Sublette. Thank you so much.